You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch posts and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands Forever. So as we head into our second week now in the book of Habakkuk, we are entering into the second exchange between Habakkuk and God himself. Last week, we started out with the first complaint of Habakkuk saying, God, how long will you put up with the, the sin and rebellion of your people, the nation of Israel? We can look back at this time period uh, under the, one of the final rules of the final kings of Judah, the southern tribes of Israel, and sin abounds. There is no fear of God. There's no rightful worship of God going on. There is nothing but sin and rebellion surrounding Habakkuk. And he's, he asks God, how long will you let this happen? God answers Habakkuk, and he agrees with him. I can't let this continue on. He's going to stop it, but the means of carrying out that judgment, the means of stopping it, were not at all what Habakkuk desires. God says, verse 11, I believe, of chapter 1. No, not verse 11. He, verse 6 says he's raising up the Chaldeans which is ancient Babylon. He's raising up the Chaldeans and they are going to come in and they're going to bring about judgment upon the rebellious. He says, Habakkuk, you're right. I can't let this continue on. We're not going to let this continue on. I'm going to raise up a nation 
that is, I'm currently raising up a nation who's going to come in and is going to bring about my justice and my judgment upon my people. He's raising up these Babylonians to march through the earth and bring about his judgment. So this week we hear Habakkuk's response. He doesn't really like what God is going to do, understandably. He was kind of thinking more, well, can't we just have revival or something? Can't we just raise up another good king maybe to, to really have some, uh, just, you know, some rightful worship be given to you? He doesn't really like the way that this goes. And as I said last week, Habakkuk, this book, if we will listen, it will train us to conform ourselves to God and His eternal good purposes instead of trying to force God to conform to ours. Habakkuk is, a, is an amazing book. It's a very challenging book, but when we get to the end, when we get to chapter 3, there's such beauty here of Habakkuk realizing that God is doing far more than he ever realized. And that though his temporal circumstances are not going particularly the way that he wants them to go, Habakkuk is forced to see something bigger. Something more is going on than just his little view of his little world. And it produces praise in Habakkuk. And so if we'll listen to Habakkuk, if we take the time to hear this message and hear what's going on, it's going to force us to lift our eyes to see that God is far bigger, far greater, and far more beautiful than we have any idea that he is. You can understand Habakkuk's disbelief. God's going to take this action against his rebellious people. He has disbelief because the way that he's going to bring about judgment on the rebellious people is by raising up a more rebellious people to then bring about his justice. And Habakkuk's like, wait a second. You're going to use them, this, the, the, the Chaldeans, this, this, that we have the description of them, swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. And actually in this second complaint, when it's hard, to, it's hard to, to see it because of the pronoun usage is just a generic he. But he's speaking of the, in verse 15, he's talking about these people in verse 15. He brings all of them up with a hook, drags them out with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad, sacrifices to his net. These people actually had a practice of hooking people together through their lips, like a fish, like you'd catch a fish. And they'd put a hook through their lips and chain them all together to lead them into captivity. This is not a nice people. This is a rebellious I mean, a really difficult, uh, very strong, very trusting in themselves, very idolatrous nation worshiping themselves. And God says, yes, I'm raising them up because, yes, Habakkuk, you're right. Justice and judgment needs to come upon his people. Understandably, this does not sit well with Habakkuk. How can God be doing this? And so he does begin this second complaint. And it's really kind of a complaint. I mean, Habakkuk is speaking boldly here to God. You know, we, and I, and I, we have our public prayers, and I'm not against public prayers and kind of more formal prayers, but you read some of the minor prophets, you read some of the Psalms, and there's just real prayer. There's real prayer that happens here. Real lament. How long, O oh God? And then real complaint from Habakkuk. Surely, God, this is not what you want to do. Surely, God, this is not the way that this is going to go. Habakkuk 
brings up this complaint. But it's interesting to look at Habakkuk's complaint because he starts all of it off by remembering who God is. It's fascinating the, 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 the switch between these two ideas that Habakkuk has in his prayer. He starts out in verse 12 saying, Are you not from everlasting? Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but the commentaries and the, and the lectures that I've listened to here on Habakkuk talk about that. That word is from the east, and, and that, that means, are you not from the rising? What, what happens in the east an hour later today than it did yesterday? The sun comes up. And are you not from where the sun rises? He's saying, are you not from before everything even begins? Are you not from everlasting you are the God who started it all off. You are the God who before, who was before there was even light. You were, you are the eternal God. Are you not the Holy One? Are you not the one who, verse 13, is of purer eyes than to even look at evil? God in His holiness and in His purity. He understands and He states God's from everlasting, that He is this Holy One. His plea to God is based not just upon his own personal preferences, but it's based upon, God, this is who you are. Your character, your nature. You are all-powerful. You are from everlasting. You have purer eyes than to even look on evil. How can you let this happen? His prayer is not based subjectively upon what he wants to see happen alone, but upon God, this is who you are. How can God go through with this? How can he allow a nation more unrighteous than Israel enact his judgment upon their unrighteousness? And God can go through with this. God can go through with this plan because he, in fact, is going to go through it. God can go through with this because he is, in fact, going to go all the way through it. This is not the, the final end of what he is going to do, but it is something that he is going to go through. This will not be his final act, but it will be one of his acts. And this is important to understand this timeline. This, this is why I'm saying Habakkuk helps us lift our eyes to the bigness of God. When, when all we can see is this moment right around us, and all Habakkuk can see is this moment right around him, when we get into chapter 2 in a couple of weeks, we're going to see, well, it won't be a couple of weeks, it might be three or four weeks now because Jim's coming in Easter, but it'll be, it might be a while now. When we get there, we'll see God is, has, is doing something big doing something big, and he is working his purposes. And though this act may not be what Habakkuk wants to see, God is able to allow it to happen, the punishment to come from these Chaldeans, because it is not his final act. Habakkuk, though he objects to the actions of God, he remembers the character of God. This God that Habakkuk is talking to, the God of the people of Israel, he has a history. Like this isn't, Habakkuk isn't the first person to talk to God, right? I mean, I mean we know we can, it's pretty obvious just to look, not, not that these are chronologically laid out, but you can kind of tell there's some history. This is, well, way more than halfway through the Old Testament that we've got, that Habakkuk is speaking to God. There, this God has a history. We get so stuck in our moment, we get so stuck in our century, we get so centered around ourselves that 
we begin to imagine, I mean, maybe even conversation with God, maybe even went back a hundred years ago. You know, God, you know, the God, he's, yeah, he's older than me, but, you know, how, how old is that history? We go back to sometimes even think, well, guys, thinking about the founding of our nation and the churches and the revivals, the great awakenings that happened even in our nation are a long time ago. That is recent history in the acts of God. That is recent history in the movement of God. We get so easily stuck in our mindset of, of our current reality that we forget the God we worship wasn't just thought up a few hundred years ago. Not even a hundred years ago. Habakkuk is speaking to him nearly 2,600 years ago this conversation is happening. And we know that actually from historical records, you can trace back the kings and other extra extraneous documents from the Bible that will keep track of these kings that we know about 2,600, give or take a few years, the, the prophet Habakkuk, whenever Judah is taken into captivity. This God has a history. Because you think back 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk is writing, God had a lot of history with the people of Israel from before then. You go back to Abraham and his workings. You go back to Joseph and the, 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 the movement into Egypt. You think about the Exodus, how God raises up Moses, raised in Pharaoh's house, but flees for 40 years and then comes back to advocate for God's people that they might be liberated out of Egypt into the promised land. And think about that powerful history God has proven himself to be holy, to be righteous, to be powerful. You think about those plagues in Egypt and all that was orchestrated. You think about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and how God was moving in all of those very difficult things. You talk about getting the, when the, when the Israelites, Moses goes to say to Pharaoh, hey, you know, can you let, let my people go? I'm not going to sing it, but you know, if you've seen the movie, let my people go. And he says, you know what, what we're going to do is we're going to actually, if you've got enough time to go give sacrifices, we're actually just going to make your work harder. You now have to go gather your own straw to make straw and mud to make bricks. You must have too much time on your hands. We're going to make things worse for you. Now, who of us in the Israelite camp would have joined the crowd that's like, Moses, could you please be quiet? <laughs> I don't want your deliverance, Moses. No, thank you. Go do something else. How can you be speaking for God and make my temporal circumstances worse? And all of that going on, all of those plagues, all of that hardness, all of it building to this incredible deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night out into freedom, into the promised land. This God, Habakkuk knows, is a good, faithful, powerful God. So he's basing his complaint not just upon, God, this isn't what I want. That's part of it. And it's okay to say, God, this is what I'd like to see happen. But he's saying, God, this is who you are. Habakkuk, knowing this, he says at the end of chapter 1, or actually the start of chapter 2, I'm going to stand and watch. How's God going to answer? I'm going to get on my watch post, take my station on the tower, look out and see what God will say to me, what he'll answer concerning my complaint. It is a very bold, it's a little defiant almost even, to stand and see what God will answer. And so God does answer. Chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision 
make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Why would you write it down? So you didn't forget it. You want it to be clear. This is the, the, the runner runs out of breath. Here's the message. Here's what's going on. Write down this message. This vision ought to be written down and spread by runners. Indeed, it will come to pass. Don't forget it. Now, verse 4 is this amazing verse in Scripture. It's quoted three times directly in the New Testament, twice by Paul, once in Romans, once in Galatians, once by the writer of Hebrews that we read this morning. Did you catch the familiarity that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe? That right, comes right after he quotes the passage from uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. Next week, we're going to, Lord willing, look at those passages and see how the New Testament writers, how they viewed this passage in Habakkuk. It's very important to think. Use, our New Testament is going to give us a lens to see how they, what they thought of the book of Habakkuk. That's next week. So that's a little teaser. Boy, doesn't that sound interesting? Doesn't that sound exciting? Oh, Darren, I can't wait for next week when we look at Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews. Maybe John 13. Y'all excited? Okay, that's coming up. That's next week. All right. That's not this week. Sorry. This is the, this is the not that week. Next week, we're going to look at that. But when he speaks of the wicked here in verse 4, he says this wicked, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. They are full of themselves. They think that by their own hand, they'll be just fine. These Chaldeans, they, 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 they prize their own nets. They're proud of their own strength. They're arrogant in their own ways, their own ability. They are quite self-sufficient. They think by their own hand, they are just fine. They're doing okay. If you saw them in the grocery store and you say, how are things going? They'd say, things are just great. I'm doing just fine. The Bible, they, they, they think they are just fine by the strength of their own hand. But God gives this contrast. The righteous, however, live by their faith. It is only the empty hand that can cling to Christ. It is only the empty hand that can cling to Christ. The Chaldeans are condemned by God in chapter 1, verse 11, when he says that their own might is their God. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might, their strength, is their God. Sadly for many, religion is seen almost in that light. It's its own personal strength. Personal conviction, personal decision. Religion, if you're a religious person, they think maybe you just have incredible uh, character, incredible stamina, maybe, maybe incredible willpower, and you just make decisions and you do things that as though living for God is done by those who have the power to do so. But the scripture reveals a totally different picture. The exact opposite is true. The righteous do not live by their own strength or their own willpower. They live as those in great need by faith in the one who can lift up those who cannot lift themselves. The righteous coming living by faith is the person saying, I need something outside of myself. The Chaldeans, they say they, their own might is their God. They are self-sufficient. They might look good in a modern context where they feel like, yes, they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They feel very sufficient. They believe it and they achieve it. They, they have great faith in their own selves. But the righteous one lives 
by faith in another. They, they recognize that all they really bring to the table is need. All they bring to the table is need. The Beatles, I'm not going to give a judgment. I don't know if you love them or if you hate them. But the Beatles, or if you think they're questionable or whatever, or you think they're wonderful, they're the best thing that ever happened. They have this song during their little flower love uh, episodes of All You Need Is Love. We know that song, right? I'm not going to torture you with it by me singing it. But we know the song, All You Need Is Love. And it's a very catchy and repetitive, and it's got a funky time signature. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so, but all you need is love. It's a nice thought. It's a nice thought. It's interesting if you talk to, there was only, I think I was, I was reading about it, only George Harrison, I think, at the, towards the end of the career, honestly thought that message was still true. <laughs> he thought you might need more than love. But anyway, uh, it was a, it's, a, it's a catchy song. The Christian message, I think, is not that. All you need is need. We don't, we don't come to Christ saying, oh, look at my love for you. Aren't you impressed? We love because he first loved us, First John tells us. We come to God, what you need is need. You come with the empty hand. The righteous live not by saying, by their love, look at me, God. I, look at the things that I've attained. Look how great I am. They come with, the only thing holding them up is faith, knowing that they have nothing and they must cling to the one who has it all. All you need is need. Does the gospel message hit you that way? Part of the good news is that you can't save yourself. That feels like crushing news in our world today. You are helpless to save yourself. You are helpless to impress God. You have nothing shiny about you with which God looks down and says, well, I never thought of doing it that way. I'm so glad I created you and you're, I'm so, this is wonderful. You'd have all you have is need you cannot save yourself. Under your own strength, you are doomed and damned by God because of our sinfulness. If you trust in your own might, as the Chaldeans and as is our natural inclinations, our hands are too full of all the things we're lifting to God to impress Him to cling to the one thing that will actually save us. With empty hands clinging to Christ. By faith, the righteous live by faith. The gospel is good news, not of what you can do for yourself, but of what has been done for you. The gospel is good news, not of what you must do for yourself, not of here's the list of things that you can do to wear yourself out, trying to impress God so that maybe he'll be on your side. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for you. And the righteous lives not by lifting up to him their greatness, but simply with empty hands, by faith, clinging to who he is and to what he has done. Is that the gospel message that you know? Is that the good news that you know? What you need, a prerequisite of sorts, what you need is recognition of your need. The only way to get to this table, the only prerequisite to get to the table of, uh, that Christ is serving of life, the only thing needed is hunger. We don't call them up, hey, can I bring anything? What can I bring you? Yeah. We all do that when we have family dinners. You know, can I bring anything? We're going to have this meal 
Don't call me up. You need to bring it. It's a gospel meal. Everything's provided. How about that? <laughs> it isn't what you bring. It's what has been brought for you. All that's required is hunger. All that's required is need, knowing that I have need. As the opening of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what, question one, what's your only comfort in life and death? Answer that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves... So who has... Let me skip over that. I don't want to. He, Christ, faithful Savior Jesus Christ, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. Not that I've brought anything. And He has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Habakkuk is being confronted with this idea. Hairs are falling from his head left and right. Is God unnoticing? God knows. God's in charge of it. And he says, the righteous live by faith. By faith in who I am, by faith in what I have done, and by faith in what I have yet to do. This gospel, this good news, not only saves you from sin, but it secures your good future. It is by faith in this God who secures our redemption and our final restoration that we live. Is faith a leap in the dark? It's often built that way. Talk about faith as a leap in the dark. You don't know where you're going to go. You don't know what's going to happen. You just take it. It's just a leap in the dark. The leap of faith. Not in Habakkuk's mind. That's not the way the Bible presents faith. It's belief in the God who is and what he has done. We were going to go to Psalm 73, but I just I commend Psalm 73 to you. It's a great example where the psalm writer talks about all the great things going on in the world around and the prosperity of the wicked and their he says they're fat and sleek. They just they got it made in the shade. They just they're well fed and they're having fun and everything is great. He's talking about the just the the uh, the envy, the greed that he has. The wicked are doing so well, and and yet the righteous, I'm here suffering. And then he goes on. He he goes into the temple and he sees. He's he's given. His his eyes are raised up to to where God sits, and he sees. Oh. God will, God will bring all things to their appointed ends. God will bring judgment to those who deserve it. He, he lifts his eyes and then he repents and confesses at the end of the psalm, there is nothing greater than having God. Verse 26 says, Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is my, the strength of my life and my portion forever. Even if my flesh fails, even if my heart fails, Folks, that ain't good. <laughs> when your flesh fails and your heart fails, you fail. And the songwriter says that if my heart fails and my flesh fails, God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. To, for this songwriter, Psalm 73, to have God is to have it all. And this is the reality being worked into Habakkuk's life. He's being forced to reset his sights upon what is of supreme value. Life is not going to go the way that Habakkuk wants it to go. The good he desired is not going to be given to him in the way that he wanted it, 
but a far better good is going to be given. A far better good is going to be given. God calls him to live by faith, not a leap in the dark, but a knowing of who this God is and trusting in him to bring about his own glory and his people's ultimate good. It's the way Jesus lived. Went to the garden. Father, not my, if this could pass, great. I'd, I'd just assume it did, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In Hebrews 12, we're going to read in a few weeks, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's the way Jesus lived. What's God doing? Well, in one sense, we have no idea. What's God doing in this particular situation? What's God doing in this church right now? What's God doing in all of us right now? In one sense, we really have no idea. What's God doing in my life? What's God doing in my family's life? How many days do we have left? You know, how many days really can we count? Can we count them? Are they more than one handful? We don't know. How many opportunities will come our way? No one knows. But we ought to work as faithfully as we can while we can. Ultimately, this is what we lay our head upon at the end of the day. God will work his purposes. God will work his purposes. And our place is to trust him. He is trustworthy and will work his purposes, disguised though they may be to us at times. He will work them for the ultimate good of his people in enjoying him forever. And the righteous live by faith in this God who has done it all to save us and to bring us to himself. May we live by faith in those promises. Let's pray. Father, this morning, help us, all of us with so many things surrounding us. We want to be the people the scripture is speaking of that know who you are. You are a good God. You are God from everlasting. You are the Holy One. And you will work good for your people. Though dark clouds of providence may hide your face at times, this is who you have been throughout the history of the universe. This is who you have been, and it is who you will continue to be. So, Father, give us eyes to see it. Give us hearts trusting in it. Give us empty hands that are no longer clinging to what we might accomplish, but with empty hands taking hold of what Christ has accomplished for us, forgiving us of our sins, bringing us reconciliation to you, the God who is working for the good of his people. Help us, God, to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.